Welcome to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are strictly those of the host, guests, and callers. Now, here's Sunjoe Gall. Hello, and uh, welcome to this segment on uh, CIO Talk Network. To learn more about the show, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. And as always, we invite you to join the discussion on Twitter. Uh, hashtag uh, as organizational change, which is org change, O-R-G change. Today's topic is preparing organizations for constant change. And our guests for today's show are Georgette Kaiser, who's the chief information with the Carlisle Group. Hi, Georgette. How are you? Hi. How are you doing? Great. Uh, great to have you. And we also have uh, Professor Elizabeth Moss-Cantor, who's the Arbuckle Professor at the Harvard Business School and is also the Chair and Director of the Harvard University Advanced Leadership Initiative. Hello, uh, Professor Cantor. How are you doing? Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, the reason we wanted to touch this topic, we've done a number of topics on change. Now, when we look at an individual change and we talk about the journey, that's one thing. But nowadays, more than ever, the change seems to be the only constant. And in order for us to be able to handle that, it's like you know changing wheels on a moving um, vehicle. Now, when we are looking at change management at that level, so smaller change, bigger change, but multiple changes happening at a given time, what is the strategy? What's the mindset? What's the culture? What's the makeup or DNA of an organization needs to be in order to be able to embrace and handle that change so that it is productive? So that said, when we are looking at the very basic, while while we talk about these multiple changes, Professor Cantor, I'd like to start with you here. At one end, we are saying we have multiple changes, but we have seen some organizations still struggling with the smallest of the change in the first place. So God bless them. How will they handle the bigger ones and multiple? Um, So first of all, let's start with one of my favorite mantras, which is change is always a threat when done to me, but it's an opportunity when done by me. So the companies, the organizations who handle change better are including many people in the process of constant change. They listen to voices from all levels. They have partners outside the organization. They allow people to pick their own projects and work on them, to create innovations for the organization. And when they do that, and and this is the mode in companies that manage to sustain themselves even through multiple big changes, For example, IBM is the only one standing of the big mainframe manufacturers from 30 years ago, and they're constantly evolving. Well, you don't do that just from the top. You build a culture in which many people can contribute to their projects. So it doesn't seem like the threatening kind of change. It's an opportunity. Google giving its professionals a chance to work on projects of their choosing. Now, not all of those projects might be the world-beating innovation of the future, the breakthrough for the company, but it certainly gets people in the mood and mindset for the idea that we're constantly improving, we're constantly evolving. And that constant evolution is what makes the difference. Before you have to change, you already have people at all levels in the company thinking about the changes they could make. So... So so, Sanjung, I would totally agree with Dr. Cantor, um, and and my my area is 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 my industry is a little different because we're in capital markets and investment management, and we're constant change. 
Um, so we tend to, you know, have a culture already that within my area, information technology, that we always have to change to kind of keep up with the markets and what's happening, you know, across the capital markets in general. Um, so, and so as Dr. Cantor said, it's a culture, and, and she's exactly right. It, once you have that kind of that cultural uh, aspect of the, of the firm um, and, and they believe in change, then it's easier to apply that change going forward. All right. So, Georgette, uh, the thing, uh, the response that you had provided just now, that essentially says that you, your organization is kind of fully cooked, and it has not I'm yet. I'm not going to say it's fully cooked. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so when I say in terms of managing change, and and the fact that you say that you you build the culture, it's all there. So, would you say if I had the focus on just building the culture where people are saying, okay, the change is going to happen. Let me be ready for it. Are we done then? Is, is, is this topic no, taken care of? No, you're never done. You're never done because, you know, with a change, you have to kind of have the leadership in place that can set the vision for where you're going. And then you have to have the leadership in place that can communicate and take the rest of the organization through that vision. I was just kind of making a, 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 a kind of broad statement saying that within the capital markets area, it's all, the markets are always changing anyway, so it's a little bit easier to make that change. But there's a whole process you have to go through to kind of really keep people on board and keep them following and, keep, and work them through the entire change. So, Professor Cantor, when we are looking at an organization like Carlisle Group and also many other organizations who are still wannabes, where is the gap truly besides, of course, the, the, the culture change and other elements Georgette mentioned? Well, you know, it's not just, it's not just culture, it's strategy. So there are blind spots throughout an organization. Um, I started looking at this many decades ago, so it's not as though this is a new phenomenon. I wrote The Change Masters several decades ago. It was considered a classic back then when giants learned to dance. In fact, Carlisle has another dancer of the giants, Lou Gerstner, it, um, uh-huh. had, had it, him in their fold. So... We have been dealing with this issue of how to get more innovation. It's not just that you have to change. It's that you have to change ahead of the curve, incorporate new technology, learn to do new things. And so the blind spots are at every level. The blind spots can be at the top because top executives hang on to last year's strategy and refuse to change. A little bit like I remember the CEO of the manufacturer of many computers who said, personal computers, who would want a personal computer? There's no market. And now Hewlett-Packard held on to the personal computer market for a very long time, even when IBM sold it, saying that's not the future. So the blind spots can be at the top. The blind spots can be middle managers. We put so much on middle managers. I mean, First of all, the whole idea that they're middle managers sounds like hierarchy, the old-fashioned hierarchy, um, and um, that's disappearing in my recent book, Supercorp, um, about leading companies. I say, you know, they're starting to be horizontal, not just vertical. But think about the poor middle manager who's supposed to meet the numbers, do everything the rules say, do it perfectly, and at the same time, all these changes are coming in, which take away his or her people for special projects, which require a total change in process. So middle managers often resist change because it's more work for them and because they're beat up, again, beat up enough in the organization anyway. Easy for the top to say you should change, harder for them to do it. 
And then for people in lower ranks, they don't all necessarily um, embrace this because they wonder what's going to happen to their jobs. That's why putting them to work, their ideas, their improvements, is a really good way to get, get change. But we're not just talking about change for the sake of change. I think it's innovation. I think it's the ability to be head, ahead of the curve in new technology to redefine your company. The auto manufacturers are such good examples because they're no longer in the metal bending business. Several of them, Daimler-Benz, Ford, they're now saying they're in the mobility business. So it's the service they provide with their vehicles. Well, that's a huge change of mindset. It's not just culture. It's their whole strategy of how they do business. So, uh, Georgette, if I were to come to you and say, if, if we could throttle change versus getting overzealous, would that solve the problem by itself? Because maybe when we are saying we have to change, and, and uh, Professor Cantor said that we have to look at the strategy and be proactive, not be hanging uh, with, the, with the last year's strategy, could this be almost a paranoia which could drive change at a pace which, it, which is beyond uh, an organization can handle? No, and would no, put, I, I, put relentless I, I, pressure. No, I actually think Dr. Cantor's right around the strategy, the culture, the innovation. I mean, all of that kind of comes together. I was just saying that if you have a, a culture of change, it's a little bit easier. Um, but, but she's exactly right when it comes to the strategy and having the right middle management leadership in place because they take the burden of it because the upper manager, the exec, they set the vision, they set the strategy, and then the middle management is responsible for executing upon that. So they're the ones that have to kind of figure out how to bring the rest of the organization along with that change that's about to occur. Um, and if you think about just the world today, and, and I think Dr. Kanner has brought a, lot, brought a lot of these ideas out, you know, with respect to the Googles, the Facebooks, you know, all these new kind of disruptive kind of technologies that have kind of come into the market, they're forcing a lot of companies to kind of change culturally and strategically because they have to be able to kind of adapt to these quick changing technologies that are coming in place that can make their business better. So there's a, there's a lot going on at once, and, it, and it's just changing a lot of firms overall, you know, as they move forward. So to your point and also Professor Cantor's about the poor middle managers, I mean, we can keep calling them poor, but the other way could be to slow down and or to supplement the resources they need or to develop them to a point where they are no longer under stress, which is going beyond their capability. It's okay to have an individual be stretched so that their personality develops, their other skills develop, but not to a point where they snap. So Professor Cantor, how do you kind of throttle the change and or keep pace or build keep pace of building these mid managers to a point where they are able to cope up. Um, so first of all you can all call me Rosabeth at this point and anybody who's listening will find me more easily by Googling Rosabeth than by Googling <laughs> my whole name. Um, since there aren't very many people named Rosabeth. Um, so the whole idea of that you're a middle manager, there are many people I talked to who said I didn't realize I was a middle manager. It's it's the kinds of assignments people are getting. It's the kind of training and orientation. It's the chance to be ahead of the technology. So I think it's not just receiving what the top tells you to do. I used to have a definition of participation is what the top orders the middle to do for the bottom. Um, it's, so it's the people who feel they're constantly having change inflicted on them that are going to resist. But it's possible to create councils and task forces and project teams 
These days, every company has to work across silos. And in fact, the days when a few corporate officers directed any, everything are long gone. I mean, while every person at every level can often reach the CEO by email or social media directly, still there are lots of people throughout the organization who are actually responsible for the change, but they have to do it with collaboration across departments or units. Innovation doesn't drop itself on us in the boxes we have on the organization chart. And so all these new projects, my recent book, Move, is about transportation um, and, and the leadership that's required to deal with complex, messy systems problems like U.S. infrastructure, which includes communications infrastructure, things that CIOs are very familiar with. Well, um, it, this all requires collaboration. Nearly every kind of big change today, and even many small ones, require um, a village. It takes a village. But I actually say it doesn't take a village. It takes a cross-sector, multi-stakeholder coalition, which I'm pausing because that doesn't exactly trip off the tongue. But it requires collaboration across parts of the company. It requires collaboration with external partners. And so we give those people who used to be buried in a hierarchy, we give them an opportunity to be on something big and important by creating new kinds of, of temporary structures that cut across many parts of the business. They can be important. They can drive the future. And when they do... It's good for their careers, it's good for the company, and it's certainly good for change. Yeah. It's, it's Let's that empowerment, would you say, Rosabeth? The empowerment of those, employee, those employees. Empowerment is a great word. I was one of the, I, I take pride in empowerment because I was uh -huh. one of the early users of that word. Absolutely. That's what your engaged, energetic organization is all about. In some ways, that should be a relief for top management or for top professionals because you don't have to know everything. You can find the people who add to what you know. In fact, I was working, I'm working with a global, very global marketing firm, very advertising and marketing, one of the top, very top, and they are turning to the millennials in their company for ideas, they're talking about maybe crowdsourcing ideas or projects. You can use the new tools to empower people, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that, the empowerment is very strong. And, and, I, and I also like what you're bringing out, Rosabeth, is the fact of that you're bringing out those millennials. And so as these firms that can go through change very well, they're learning that everybody at the, at the organization brings something to the table. You need to tap into the different levels instead of working through the old hierarchies that we used to work through, you know, where you had to have the channels. But now people tap in, you know, to all different levels to kind of bring out those great ideas. Uh, that's a great point. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And let's look at the, the reliability factor that once we used to champion, and especially when we look at a manager, they are supposed to do the things right while the leader is supposed to do the right things. And so the, the leaders at the top say, okay, we are going to go about making changes. And then at the same time, manager is supposed to ensure a reliability all along. And whenever you talk change, that means you are trying to disrupt. 
So if the measure of how a manager delivers or rest of the crew delivers is based on reliability, what incentive do they have? And why will anyone in the team would really work together to embrace this change, bring about change and disrupt, which is going to be not in the best interest of how they are seen in terms of their performance. So let's explore this when we come back. Please stay tuned. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjoke All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjoke All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Georgette, uh, reliability is a mantra which still at least remains as the fundamental baseline on which most mid-managers are measured. And even as a leader, while you may go about doing all the innovation and show the greatest and greatest, latest and greatest things that you do with an organization, but if something is not working as expected, they still get their hands slapped. So how can an organization develop or, or actually sustain reliable operations while at the same time still say, okay, we are going to do this constant change? So, so it's interesting. When it comes to change, you have to think that it's all agile. It's test, fail, test, fail, test, fail. Those are the, that's the innovation side that comes out of it because you have to fail to actually get better. So I think that's where that reliability that you're talking about, it begins to change over time because the manager no longer gets their hand slapped clap as long as they own whatever the issue was and figure out how do we get better from it and improve from it as we go along. Um, so, so, so I hear what you're saying, but I think that all of that's beginning to change in this new innovative environment where um, organizations are they're telling their, their, their associates, everyone, it's okay to fail. Um, not at the risk of the firm, but it's okay to test and learn, test and learn, test and learn, and continue to get better. So with that said, uh, Rosabeth, for you, if I were to place this question in a different way and say the reliability that we were talking about, it was with the customer. The customer should start feeling that we are a reliable provider and that instills trust. And if you are allowed to do the sandboxing at the, at the cost of, uh, at the peril of the customer, then we are cannibalizing the value we would have otherwise received. Uh, by innovation, by also losing trust from the customer. How do you handle that? I would say that that would be very bad management who does it that way. I think, first of all, as customers become increasingly treated as partners, they can know what's going on. They can know when there's an experiment and they're part of it. They can opt in or out or whether they're getting the same old, same old. There's also a difference between how you handle the legacy business I call it the mainstream, how you handle the mainstream legacy business and how you handle new ventures. And you sometimes separate them exactly because of that rapid prototyping, testing and experimenting that Georgette was talking about. 
so many companies who do this well have a set of of traditional products and services and customers and a sales force and and um, service support and manufacturing reliability, production reliability for software, et cetera, et cetera. And they know that the goal there is to continue what they're doing. Maybe they make improvements. I mean, Verizon, for example, Telecom, which is seeing its landline business decline while wireless has picked up, but even wireless is now um, has to deal with the, the impact of the cloud um, and other forms of data analytics. But even in the wireline business, they managed to innovate by adding Fios. That was very innovative. But they know the difference between the metrics, the performance standards in a legacy business, and then the much more uncertain and flexible requirements for something new. And if you don't know that difference, you can really get into big trouble. You can then, as you said, undermine the reliability of the legacy business at the same time that you're not doing very well with the new ventures. New ventures need to be held to a different set of standards. They still can have deadlines, but sometimes there's a lot of uncertainty. Can you meet the deadline? Should they do quarterly reporting? Should they um, be able to modify what they're doing midstream? And the best new ventures do that in collaboration with customers or users. They don't do it in a vacuum. So there's lots of ways to get around that problem. And exactly this kind of organizational flexibility and knowledge about which business you're in and what's it trying to do is required now of everybody in every role, even if you used to think all you have to do is keep your head down and do your job. can't do that anymore. Now you have to know about the context in which you're operating. So, Georgette, if I were to go out and try to uh, make a difference or come up with this disruptive innovation versus just building a mousetrap, that means creative destruction. That means starting afresh on a blank sheet of paper. Mm-hmm. How much of that contribute towards really an organization which uses change for the, the quantum improvement in what they bring to the table versus keep building better mousetraps, those small, agile, you know, you know fail fast, fail small. How, how much of that are you seeing is happening in the industry where the organizations have used towards really creating something significant, some, some ROI significant versus trivial? I mean, you see a lot of the firms actually going through major changes now because of the environment, as um, Rosabeth had spoke about, with you know, bringing in partnerships and leveraging others. So take some of your bigger banks, you know, who were on very old infrastructures um, for many years, and now they have you know, have started kind of new ventures on the side. Uh, Bank of New York Mellon has been doing a whole transformational change on the side right now, and they'll fold that back into, you know, their regular business as they're working through these kind of new kind of um, object-oriented kind of module sets that they put in place for their customers to kind of be able to kind of get in and do easier reporting and things like that. Um, So there's a lot happening that it's it's creative, uh, as you said, creative uh, disruption because 
Um, it's very creative. It's helping the firms kind of, you know, do a transformational change in a very agile fashion um, instead of kind of doing a full waterfall, you know, and trying to kind of figure out what all their new requirements are and trying to kind of work through a big major change going forward. Um, you know, so it, it makes a huge difference with how you approach changes based on, you know, how big these changes are and as you move forward. But it goes back to what I had said before, before that it's incredibly important that you do it in a very agile fashion um, when it's something large and transformational um, because you have to kind of continue to show and add value along the way with that change that you're trying to kind of, you know, put into the organization and trying to disrupt it in a way to move it forward um, at, overall. So, Rosabeth, how about looking at organizations where they are doing these major transformations? Is, uh, is it permission-based or at least taking the troops along, which is to say, okay, we are going to do this massive change, which will impact people's lives, their budgets, their, their timelines for the projects and everything else. Do you guys agree? Perhaps if we did that, it would never see the daylight. But if we don't, then as a part of adopting the change at all different levels, that will become a monumental task. So what's the trick that is utilized or what, what approach is utilized for these massive transformation changes that are to happen where the field troops are not uh, causing resistance, active or passive? Well, I should first say from my years of experience and consulting to companies all over the world that no matter how much everyone wants a major transformation, there's still resistance, disagreement. You just can't expect everything to go perfectly. I'm going to tell you how you can get everything to go perfectly, but I also want to remind you of Cantor's Law. Cantor's Law is that everything can look like a failure in the middle. Um, there's nothing that you start, particularly when it's new and different, taking you into new territory that doesn't hit bumps in the road, obstacles you didn't know were there, the team gets tired, people who have objections, critics who surface. So let's understand that there's nothing about doing major change that always goes smoothly. In fact, in my book, Confidence, I also show that winning teams on long winning streaks are sometimes behind in the game. So even if you're in a very successful company doing very well, you're going to hit some bumps in the road. That being said, there are some classic principles of change management. First of all, um, it's very important to articulate a theme, a vision, and articulate it again and again and again. A lot of what leaders do is they're great communicators. They give people a framework so that they can understand what's happening, put it into perspective, and they communicate it endlessly. I just tweeted a day or two ago, that leaders have to remember that just because it's been said, that doesn't mean it's been done. It has to be repeated over and over again, and then there need to be ways for people to get involved for local innovations or quick wins to demonstrate what all that vision means. If you don't have demonstration projects and proof of concept, people won't really understand what it's all about. And you augment it with a lot of education, training tools. Ginny Rometty at IBM is doing um, seminars, webinars all over the place for all IBMers to understand the implications of the cloud, the implications of Watson. Um, that's really important. And I've noticed that every CEO I know today is a really good communicator. They're not always fiery, 
Um, some are soft-spoken, but they really know how to stand up in front of their people um, face-to-face and also communicate the message everywhere. And so then education, training, action tools, you need champions um, who will champion particular projects. you got to find the people in the company already on board and let them lead and then have top executives sponsor their projects. And then you begin to think about what policies and structures need to be changed in order to permit the change to happen. How do we change reward systems, incentives, recognition? What are the feedback mechanisms, the metrics that are used? So this is all classic change management. Nothing new today. It's just a question of using it. Yes, I and I have to. Um, I agree with Rosabeth um, so well. It's just a framework she laid out, and you know, just a real world example that uh, that we're dealing with at Carlisle right now, which we're taking the firm through what we call as a strategy of the desktop of the future. Um, and so we're moving because our two thirds of our staff is traveling all the time. We have a very global staff of fund managers and deal and deal managers, and you know that they should be carrying laptops wherever they go. And if they step into any Carlisle office, it should be an experience that they stepped into wherever their 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 local offices where they live. And so we're moving them all from, you know, their desktops, you know, to to Microsoft surfaces that they can travel anywhere. We started out with a good pilot um, of um, 80 people in the firm, and we've been testing and trialing with them over time. We've had other people trying to get into the pilot, and we're like, no, we got to really see what this test group says. We've had great communications and lunch sessions and trainings on how to use all the, the new products with respect to, you know, that we're, that we're loading up on these new surfaces. And it's just constant communication communication, training, you know, understanding what the users are, are experiencing, you know, taking that data back in, you know, re-imaging, you know, to kind of meet their needs. And, and so as Dr. Cantor said, it's, 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 a, it's a continual, you know, just change management that occurs. We have sponsorship from the top, you know, our founders believe in what we're doing, you know, the, the whole C-suite believes in what we're doing and just champions along the way. And we feel like by the time we get to the end of the year that we'll have a very successful project as we move, you know, to this full new desktop of the future. But it's a major change for the organization. Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back and let's talk about the people. Do we consider them resources or assets? And are we doing something to prevent the burnout and detachment when as part of these transformations, whether small or big, we are hiring and firing people and are moving them around? What message are we sending? Because in the very beginning, we mentioned that we need the people to come together for the culture to develop and which will support change. How are we making sure with all of this movement, we are not losing more than we are gaining? Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. Now, back to the show. 
Welcome back. So, Rosabeth, people could be seen as resources. They could feel themselves to be assets and valuable uh, for an organization, or they could be made to feel that they are dispensable entities. And in so much of transformation that may be going on, which may be disruptive, fundamentally changing the business units, the what we deliver and how we do it, it is definitely impacting the makeup of people and who stays this month versus next month. What kind of message are we sending and is this the recipe to to sustain constant change? So I don't think there's a we in it. I think there is so much variation in um, in American companies, in global companies, in small businesses. There's enormous variation. There are some companies that... Um, have a culture of inclusion where people feel they have a career path, but meanwhile, even though no one has promised a job for life anymore, they have cool things to work on. And that's really important. I talk about the three M's of motivation, of which money is not one of those M's, by the way. It's a nice reward after. Of course, it may be different in private equity um, <laughs> with our other guests, but um, I talk about mastery, membership, and meaning. If you give people meaningful work um, where they feel they're making a difference, they feel a member of a community, they feel valued, treated well as an individual, and also have a chance for mastery of challenging things, they'll go there and stay. That's the lure of Silicon Valley, but that's also why a lot of, of tech employees will go from job to job. They like startups, and that is, by the way, the reason that IBM and Verizon, two of the companies I've mentioned in this program so far, are now considered cool employers because they have these new things that are going on where there's a chance to really learn and also be part of something big. So, you know, that's the kind of thing we do. And we also use a, a lot of change principles in doing that that do involve um, feedback mechanisms and looking out for people's careers, but that's some companies. There's huge variation in companies. And so overall, a lot of studies show recently a great demoralization on the part of the American workforce. There's an awful lot of people who aren't satisfied with their jobs anyway, and that's not just because of potential disruptions. It's because of how they're treated. The way people get their satisfaction at work often comes filtered through their own team, their own manager, and the own work they do. And so it's one thing for the company to be on to grand things that are really important, change the world, but if people don't feel every day on the job that they're well-treated, and again, there's huge variation, so much so that, you know, unprecedented levels of demoralization in the workforce yeah, I, so I totally agree with Rosabeth, and um, even though I'm a CIO and, and get technology very well, sometimes I feel like I should have been an OD person, organizational development, because, um, you know, really getting an organization, you know, a culture, uh, you know, that's innovative and, and, and set for change to deal with this technical world, you, you have to understand all the people. And, and, and as Rosabeth said, you don't want to demoralize anybody. So it's, it's, it's really important that you realize that, everybody plays a role and you kind of bring out that good piece of that role that everyone plays so they feel a part of the bigger whole. And, you know, if you're coming up with a new strategy, a new vision, you feel like you have to figure out how do you communicate that strategy and vision to everyone across the firm so they realize that they play a piece 
of the overall vision of where the firm is going. And if you can get everyone on board and they feel a part of it, then you can take, you, you, you can do incredible things with your organization moving them forward. Um, you know, and I've done it on small scales just within our, our CI, within our, you know, office of the CIO, our divisions, you know, with, with technology and just big company changes we've seen. We've seen Lou Gerstner. We've seen, you know, you know, people like that, you know, who are, are, are great CEOs kind of make these type of changes, you know, over time. Jack Welch was a great one. You know, and, and really kind of getting it out there, getting people to understand the change and kind of taking the organization through the change as they went forward. So, Rosabeth, uh, if you were to look at the changes, both large and small, not every change would go well. And we understand that we are trying to develop a culture of fail fast, fail small. But then there is, there is, a, there is only a limited appetite, I'm assuming, for an organization where on one hand it's already you know facing that competitive pressure and on top of it they would have some large and small failures so what we've seen as a result is somebody gets fired but is is that again is 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 there a balance or is there a a, a way for us to throttle and or to manage a, a manageable change space space of change so the best companies don't fire people just because um, they've made a mistake. It's how they made the mistake. It's whether they've learned from it. It's whether knowledge has been generated that can be used for something else. But the truth is, with these transitions, people who have come in with one skill set, and that skill set may not be totally appropriate to new business. The fastest way the company can change is by hiring a lot of new people with a different skill set. So, it is up to companies to treat people well, even in transitioning them, but they have to transition. This is a big debate going on in France at the moment, um, which has a lot of people who have employment security sitting around doing nothing as they try to be frozen out of a job um, because France doesn't allow you to make replacements. In the U.S., maybe we go too far, except right now we're close to full employment. So for people who want to learn, for people who have good skills, and for a company that wants to keep the goodwill of their alumni, then there's help. In fact, I know of an instance in which a startup is now ready to sell the startup to the company that the person exited 15 years ago. So alumni are really a great source of talent. So there is no comfort that changes. I mean, I, I hate to say this because I want everybody to be happy, secure, but I think part of the security comes from being continually educated. Part of the security comes from um, finding the right organizations, pressing them. I mean, unions actually used to be a source of security. They're not big in the tech world, but, you know, some kinds of associations are helpful to people. Look at all the people who are driving for Uber or Lyft. They're now talking about forming associations so that they can talk about benefits together. Um, well, you know, that begins to sound awfully like another kind of union. I mean, the, the protections come from learning and education. They come from banding together collaboratively. But change is hard. If it were easy, I wouldn't have a living doing this. Um, and by the way, some of the tools that I've referred to during this talk can be found. One of them in particular, the elements of change, is a framework called the change wheel. 
and people can find it through Harvard Business Publishing um, because it's one of the teaching materials that we make available. Um, so I don't know how we make it easy, but we have to do everything we can to think about the human, to make the transition, to help people find new things, and to help people be self-sufficient and confident, and then to make sure that they can carry their pensions with them, to make sure that they're treated fairly, that's laws. So this isn't the stuff CIOs usually think about. In fact, there's sometimes a tendency in business to think that's all negative. Silicon Valley hates government. Well, that's a big blanket statement um, because Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook had worked at the highest levels of government in the U.S. Treasury Department, so they don't. Um, but, you know, we definitely need those kinds of protections. Uber and Lyft, for example, are starting to recognize that, that they can't, change, they can't treat their drivers as temporary disposable. They're not really employees. So we have a new set of issues coming up, but we can tackle them as long as, again, we're realistic about what's going on. Um, you can have taxi drivers and the taxi industry deciding that they don't want Uber and Lyft, but um, that's not going to last very long. They're here to stay. Those are wonderful things. But Austin, Texas just voted to say that those new technologies, those companies have to play by the rules or they can't operate in Austin, Texas. Yeah, I, I, and I think it's very interesting. One piece that you said, Rosabeth, was around, you know, organizations, especially CIOs, and, you know, retooling and kind of rethinking their employees for the change. I mean, the digital era, you know, which deals with, you know, big data, um, the cloud mobility has caused a lot of change for us, and we've had to figure out how to reskill and retool our employees. And it's interesting how, you know, the quick boot camp started up where you can do 10-week programming, you know, and, and, and you know, learn you know, a, a lot of tools you can bring into the market or like firms like General Assembly, you know, that have all these like 10-week programs, you know, they have kids that kind of came out of college with their four-year degrees, um, but we really need them in these technical fields and they're kind of going off to these 10-week programs and getting retooled and reskilled to kind of come back into the marketplace for us to kind of help us get through the chain. So there's, there's a lot of things that are kind of happening disruptive in the market that is causing, you know, the, the labor force to kind of retool and reskill, you know, for future needs that we have. And, and it, you know, I sit back sometimes and I wonder, like, you know, what's going to happen, you know, with our, our regular kind of university college, you know, four-year, you know, programs and things like that. And, I, and, and to me, those give um, the quality of the, of the hires that we do have, you know, it gives them the social skills that we need to kind of understand how to work within corporate America and, and deal with change. So there's a lot going on there that is just very interesting. And I read it in my Harvard Business Reviews and things like that. Well, how do I kind of stay up with the talent that I need, you know, ongoing through all the change that we're taking the organizations through? Let's take a quick break, listeners. We'll be right back. And um, Georgette, this actually ties very well into the next question I wanted to ask is about uh, the kind of skill mix. So Gartner term, we created a term, or coined a term a couple of years ago called versatilist, neither specialist nor journalist. Uh, and, and the reason it was done so is because we are finding, because of cost arbitrage, we are following the sun, and we are trying to take things which are very predictable, and, and which can be you know, put in a box, if you will, for it to be executed, can very well be you, you know, delivered from anywhere in, you know, on the planet. And people who need to be 
in the organization, uh, specifically close to where the businesses and the users are, they need to have those skills, which are a combination of technical or, or a functional skill and also the other people skills so that they are able to collect the requirement, understand what the user wants and, and help the organization become relevant. Given the programs that we are creating today and the changes that we are going to see here, the pipeline that we are developing through the colleges are still very technical, very tactical, which is also another issue. So what is being done by organizations today to not only look at, okay, I want to bring about change, but also start rethinking the resource pool, the level of skills that you require, and how will you deploy them over a period of time so that you have sustained workforce capability available. Please stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back and explore. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CTN CIO Talk Network, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experience with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive, better care for customers, and improve the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjog All at CIO Talk Network. You are listening to CTN CIO Talk Network with Sunjo Gall. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, Georgette, this, this versatilist term, uh, while, of course, you know, the organizations may be looking at it, at the same time, we do not really have our academic system or the places where the people are learning their skills, both functional and uh, technical skills, are, are not in a way aligning. So some people say it is a time bomb that you're trying to do so much change, you're trying to make people acquire these skills, but not everything will be available for us to execute on that, and suddenly you will have to stall. What do you say about that? It's, a, it's an interesting term, versatilis. Um, uh, actually, it's the first time I've heard it, so I'm glad you defined it for me. Um, but I understand it um, fully now with, um, you know, your, your specialists and your generalists. Um, but what I, what I see is, is that universities are actually changing. So in our industry, you know, on the front office side, you need um, your, your technical solution people to be very good at the business, to have a deep understanding of the business and understand their customer needs, but also understand technology enough to actually be able to kind of supply the answer. So it's a very solutions-oriented type of person. Um, and so universities are actually changing a lot now. I see a lot of it happening where they're looking at, you know, everyone's been pushing STEM, uh, but they bring in the other piece that is, some people call it STEAM, which is the A for the, the art, the liberal art side, because you got to have good, strong technical te- technologists that can kind of go in and, you know, take deep dives with the business, really get involved with them, understand what's happening, and then step out and then work with others who are more of the specialist, you know, kind of your, your deep embedded kind of computer science programmer that kind of stays behind the scene and others like that, to kind of actually do the X. Ex- 
execution piece of items. Um, and so you, you're, you're starting to find that kind of, you know, that, that separation, you know, of that skill set. But I think the universities are trying to kind of, you know, get people to increase their people skills along the way because they know what's important for what companies are looking for um, as we move forward. Um, so um, so I, I, I hope, and Dr. Cantor, it would be very interesting to understand, um, you know, your thought process, process, especially, you know, at Harvard and other universities on what they're doing to try to change, you know, to kind of meet the, the needs of what corporations are kind of looking for going forward. But I see it when I talk to a lot of organizations. Um, so first, thank you. And um, it's, there's certainly change going on. And we have at Harvard, for example, we have an innovation lab, which is open to the entire university community. Um, so undergraduates as well as professional and graduate students to create new things. We have an alumni innovation lab right next to it. Harvard Business School has an innovation accelerator in New York City for our alums. So we are trying to make it possible to get out of the single mode of classrooms and content. We have online content, um, online courses. We have um, ways that people can defer for work experience. We are creating Harvard Business School, um, a partnership increasingly with our School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, which is about to relocate next to the business school. So much is going on sort of structurally at the university. And then there's what's happening to young people. First of all, kids are learning coding by working on certain kinds of online games. And the idea that coding should be part of every education, K through 12, is a really interesting thought. So there is some stepping up. And I know of many innovations around the country. One of the promising innovations is the six-year high school, where students can graduate with a high school diploma and an associate's degree in a technology field in six years, but actually a lot of them are getting both degrees in four years. IBM helped start that, called P-TECH, Pathways in Technology Early College High School, scaling very fast. There will soon be 100 P-TECHs around the country. And here you have high school students who would have been dropouts because this is random selection in the public schools who are finishing a six-year program in four years, and IBM has already hired a number of them at $50,000-a-year jobs. So we have new sources. Some of the sources are the disadvantaged. Some of them are loosening up the structures because I agree that talent is going to be the biggest limitation on our ability to tap the value of the new technology um, our biggest limitation, and every company says that now, and so that's why HR policies are under scrutiny. Yes, so, it, it's, I mean, talent, talent is, talent is, I mean, it's very hard, you know, for me, especially, you know, I have to, I'm a, in the financial industry, and, and I'm going up against, you know, trying to get technologists, but, you know, they could go to Google, Microsoft, you know, Facebook. There are other places that they can go. Um, so, and, and there are, People just aren't moving into, you know, the field of, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math. And, and so as, Dr., as Rosabeth just said, uh, there are creative ways at the high school and the, and the middle school and the elementary levels that people are starting to think about to kind of groom kids that way as we need them going forward for all the change that's occurring. Yeah, and listen to all the, CEO, the CIOs or IT people who may be listening to this show. Be a mentor in your yes. schools. It will be so welcome to have people with the real technology skills, they're working with young people. 
Uh, so one last question, and Rosabeth, I'll, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, we, we actually did a show on formalizing leadership development. So we did talk about uh, Lou Gerstner and many other great CEOs who may have done whatever they did to bring about change and uh, continual change. But then there are many others who we aspire to develop but then there are no programs which are formalized to a point where we say, okay, we know it's almost like an institution within an organization, which will allow us to develop them for this new age of leadership that it demands, because we need continu continual change to be uh, affected. So, so wh what is being done or what is your appeal to the organizations today oh, so I that they develop it? I think there are great role models. In fact, there's a book... Um, that came out of a partnership between Fortune Magazine and what was then Hewitt Associates of the best companies for developing leaders, I suggest that the people who are listening look at the role model companies. They all invest a great deal in leadership development. And leadership development, by the way, is not just sitting in a classroom. Um, at IBM, their corporate service corps sends teams of diverse people around the world to solve a problem, not even for a customer, not even for a pre-customer, but to solve a difficult problem involving technology. And they learn an incredible amount from their interaction. Um, and that's one of the ways of developing leadership in addition to having many training, training programs and courses. All right, uh, 30 seconds for you. And I totally agree, and, and I think that um, a lot of firms are now getting strong leadership and development programs within their HR departments, within organizations. And I've worked for great organizations like General Electric, Tier Price, the Carlisle Group, and all have had leadership and development programs to actually really develop their internal leaders and work to um, get their kind of potential internal leaders kind of matched up, you know, with other senior leaders in the firm to kind of help guide them going forward. Um, you know, so they're just incredible opportunities. Um, you know, with, within the firms, within the HR departments and firms, to create stronger leadership and development programs, you know, to help develop those future leaders. On behalf of the show and our listeners, I'd really like to thank you, both uh, uh, Georgette and uh, Rosabeth, for uh, learning about and sharing with all of us here in terms of how organizations can prepare for constant change. Thank you so much again. Thank, thank you. you. And listeners, hope you enjoyed. Uh, please like us on Facebook, search for CIO Talk Network, and please be sure to follow us on Twitter. Thank you again for listening to CIO Talk Network. This is Sanjog, all your talk show hosts. Till next week, take care and God bless. Thank you for tuning in to CTN, CIO Talk Network, with your host, Sunjoe Gall. To learn more about our program or for show archives, comments, or questions, please visit CIOTalkNetwork.com. Thank you again for listening.